Well, I'd encourage you to turn uh, to First John, the series that we are in. And again, if you have your uh, Bible, it's uh, close to the back. If you're new here or the, it's not as familiar to you, just close to the back of the book, right prior to Revelation, the last book in the Bible, you'll, you'll see First uh, John uh, close by there. And we're in chapter 5 today. We've been in a series throughout these last number of weeks looking at this letter that uh, John, the apostle, has written to the churches that he has pastored to these small people groups, these uh, likely house churches that were connected and uh, uh, he was their shepherd and their church planter. And if you've been part of this series, you know that we've been talking uh, about the reality that they were facing a lot of challenges. They had faced some significant conflict where there was heresy being taught within their church, and there were those who left the church, and John was teaching in the midst of that context. And today in the chapter that we'll see, we'll see again how how he comes along and he is encouraging this body of believers, given what they have gone through and what they are going through. And I think, again, it is a timeless message and one that I trust God will use to encourage each one of us here today. I've also said in this series that John often uh, repeats himself, and uh, one of the great teaching methods that often is utilized is repetition. You know that if you're a teacher or have been a teacher, or if you've ever been a student, you know that you got to kind of repeat things once in a while in order to understand them and to sort of have them stick with you and stay with you in different ways. And so John is definitely using that method because he too makes several points uh, over and over and over again, and in In chapter 5, we'll see that he does that again, and he summarizes a number of the themes that he has been picking up on and emphasizing throughout this letter uh, to these churches. So let's start in in chapter 5. I want to just start in verses 1 to 5, this first section. And in many ways, he captures a lot of, uh, again, a summary, repetitive summary of what he's been saying. And he's restating it again, summarizing it again in a really concise fashion. And he says it this way, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. And we know that we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God means keeping his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For every child of God defeats the evil world and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So again, he picks up on this theme that of who Jesus is because uh, at this time they don't have the scriptures as we have the scriptures now today. And so people were trying to understand who is this Jesus that people are talking about, that people are writing about, that people are kind of pointing to this resurrection event and happen, of what happened and they're trying to understand it. And John is emphasizing that again and reiterating who Jesus is. He says he is the Messiah. He is the one, if you're of Jewish descent, he's the one that you've been waiting for. The one that you have heard about, the one that has been prophesied about, that is who he is. And so he's emphasizing this again and again. And he says, if you believe in him, you become a child of the king. He says, you need to put your faith in him. He also says in these verses that, again, there is a direct connection between loving God and loving God's children. In other words, if you love God, you will love the church. If you love God, you'll love the people of the church. Sometimes some of the hardest people to love. That would have been true in that context. And he says, if you love God, it will be evident by how you love other Christians. Because he's writing to Christians. He's writing to this church, and he's challenging them. And he says, there needs to be alignment in this 
love of God and love of people because you can't say that you love God if you actually don't love others. And he also says if you love God, it'll be evidenced by your obedience to God. In other words, the way that God calls us to live, as outlined in Scripture, is, is evidence of your love of God. You, you can't disconnect those two. Those two, as well, have to be in alignment. They have to line up. If you love God, it will be evidenced by how you live. It makes a difference. And so he says that again here, right in these first chapters, the first verses. And so he's saying that the, you know, the only way to alignment, the only way to reconciliation especially to this church that he's talking to who's gone through so much conflict. He's saying the only way to truly be a loving, caring community is to understand who Jesus is, truly. What we might call Christology, of of understanding who is Christ, who is this Jesus. Do we have the right thinking in that way? And so John is teaching them over and over again to have a clear view of that, of God's commitment to you and God's love for you through Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross. And he's saying that the only way that you can truly be transformed is to have this central truth of the gospel so entwined in your life, so deep in your heart, so seeping through your pores that it changes everything. But then in verse 4, he says that, that one line that this week just really struck me. He says that line of, for every child of God defeats this evil world. And we achieve this victory through our faith. And he talks about the battle that rages. That there is victory through faith. That there is a defeat of this evil world. And I don't know about you, but as I've gone through this week and just sort of watched the events unfold throughout the world, it's reminded me again of this evil world that we live in. And even... One person I just saw on the news last night who says, you know what, evil doesn't have a nationality or a country. Evil doesn't have a religion. Evil is just evil. Thought it was a good point. And yet here, John, in this timeless message, he's saying, you know what, you, if you put your faith in Christ, there is victory over this evil. And I, that caused me to pause this week and go, okay, do I really believe this? Do we really believe this? As our hearts are heavy, as we look at what happens in different countries of the world, and it again, I think this past week, has tested our ability to respond with compassion, with prayer, with maybe even anger or empathy, any of those normal kind of human emotions that come when we see a tragedy happen, it kind of gets dulled when the tragedies just sort of pile up and they just sort of repeat themselves over and over again. And there's a, a picture of a newspaper article that I have that just sort of shows some of the summary of that just from a day or two ago. And one of the questions in, in an article that was written, it just says, you know, or first of all, it says we in many ways have tragedy fatigue. It's like you can't even sort of respond anymore because they just sort of keep piling up. And even this morning, hearing about some more police shooting in the States. And it's like, okay, when does it stop? It doesn't seem to stop. In one article, it asked the question about, you know, when, when is it that we stop praying for Orlando? You know, and then we sort of move on to the next one because, and, and when was it that we were supposed to stop praying for Brussels? Remember that? <laughs> okay, and, and when was it that we were supposed to stop praying for Jakarta and what happened there? Do you remember that? Like that was not that long ago, but it gets lost, right? Or, or praying for what happened in Paris or because now of what happened in Nice or 
what happened in Turkey last time, but now because of what happened in Turkey this time. And, and so it just sort of piles up, not to mention the senseless murders in Calgary of, of Sarah Bailey and little Talia Marsman. And you, and you look at that and you go, what is going on? It's hard to witness such evil, let alone make any sense of it. And so you ask the question, we appropriately ask the question, okay, so what relevance does this text, what, what relevance does this gospel have that John is summarizing here to all of this? And I would say everything. It has complete relevance to this in so many different ways. It says every child of God defeats this evil world through faith in Jesus Christ. Believing in Jesus, the one who overcame the world. And as I was thinking about this this week, it struck me that, you know, I'm sure in Jesus' day that people would have asked themselves similar questions. They would have said, what kind of evil does it take to actually nail a person to a cross and let them hang there by these nails until they die? Like what kind of brutal brutality and evil actually has to occur in the hearts of men in order to do that? I'm sure people ask that. I hope they ask that question. And yet that was a common practice in that day of how they would execute criminals. And we, we think that we live in a unique world of violence and evil. And yet here was Jesus in a world of violence and evil, God himself who took upon the violence of the world willingly. Who in fact carried his own cross that he might be hung up on it. Who took the sins of the world upon himself because of God's initiative, because of God's reconciling love. It's an amazing gospel. And it has complete relevance to the events that we see in the world today. Because you see, this is the love that John is pointing to over and over and over and over again in this text. He's saying you need to know this God. You need to know that God is love. And that's not just some fluffy kind of sentiment. That is a God who is love who will take the evil of the world upon himself and die for our sins and our evil and that which lurks within our hearts. And that's what John is pointing to. And he says that's how you overcome the world is you embrace this God who is such extravagant love and you start to follow and obey in his ways. And a few weeks ago, we talked about the idea of family resemblance and you start to resemble the Father and the Son as you walk by his Spirit. And John, I believe, goes on and he, he's teaching here that it is the full gospel, not just part of the gospel that allows us to do that. And let's keep reading in verse 6 to 10. As John says, And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's Son by his baptism in water and by shedding his blood on the cross. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit, who is truth, confirms it with his testimony. So we have these three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And all three agree. Since we believe, that human, since we believe human testimony, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God. And God has testified about his Son. And all who believe in the Son of God know in their hearts that this testimony is true. And those who don't believe this are actually calling God a liar because they don't believe what God has testified about his son. Water and blood. What's he speaking about here? He's really speaking about the whole of Jesus' ministry. The entirety of his ministry. 
That Jesus, as he was incarnate, God himself in person, in the flesh, who was baptized in the Jordan River, who has inaugurated his ministry in that time, and then also as it culminated at the cross and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, he says, this is what we testify to. This is what we give witness to. So this ministry beginning of this baptism and also the crucifixion and the blood that was there on the cross. I think sometimes throughout the course of church history, we like to kind of sanitize the gospel a little bit, and we like to take out some of that messy stuff about the cross and the blood and so on. And John was actually addressing some of those people who were doing the very, that very thing. They were sort of discarding some of the gospel and, and taking out this violent part, this awkward teaching. And so, but John is saying, no, 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 this is absolutely core to the gospel. It's not just about the incarnation of God in the flesh himself, about the birth of Jesus, an actual birth of Jesus and the baptism of Jesus, but also his blood and the death on the cross. Because it's in that that he took the baggage and the weight of our sin. And he carried them to the cross and he dealt with them there. And the truth is that we don't have to carry that baggage anymore. We don't have to carry the weight of that sin. And he says, we don't have that freedom. We don't have that gift without the cross. And so it is by water and the blood, he says. And so just as John was addressing false teaching in that day, we too have to push against any time when people try to sanitize the gospel and say, no, 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 that's just a little bit awkward and messy, and I don't know what to do with that. But it is absolutely core to the gospel message. Paul, he also addressed that in, in Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, he says a similar thing. I found it kind of interesting as you, as you think about what he's actually saying here, because Paul says, uh, so when we preach that Christ was crucified, in other words, this messy part of the gospel and the reality of that, he says, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. Well, now, if you lived in that time, you understood that there was only two kinds of people in the world. There was Jews and Gentiles. That was it. You're in one of two categories. And so he's basically saying everybody kind of thinks this is kind of offensive or whatever. He says the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense, the crucifixion. But then he goes on and he says, but those, to those called by God as salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, the crucifixion, and the resurrection is both the power of God and the wisdom of God in terms of how God dealt with the sin and the evil that is so prevalent in our world. And so John is giving testimony and witness to this critical truth as well. And he talks about three witnesses. And if you go into Jewish law, Jewish law required to have two witnesses uh, of, of any account. If, if something came to court or they need to sort of uh, adjudicate something, if something needed to be validated, if it was being tried and tested in one way or another, it required two witnesses who would say the same thing. And so John, I think, is kind of upping that here, and he, he gives three, and then he actually adds a fourth one as well, too. But he says, no, no, here are three witnesses about the water, the blood, and the Spirit. All three of these give testimony to this. And then he talks about how God, too, is also a witness. He says, God the Father is also a witness. He doesn't say clearly exactly, well, how does that exactly work here? We're, we're not totally sure about what that looks like. He doesn't really explain it here. But I find it interesting in the book of Hebrews, in chap Hebrews chapter 1, if you flip back there just a few pages, Hebrews chapter 1, it is a similar account where it actually speaks of God the Father giving witness or testimony to the Son. And God the Father is now saying, speaking about the Son and to the Son and saying, here's who Jesus is, okay? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. 
For God never said to any angel what he said to Jesus. He says, you are my son. Today I have become your father. God also said, I will be his father and he will be my son. And when he brought his firstborn son into the world, God said, let all of God's angels worship him. You only worship God. So God the Father is saying, you worship the Son, Jesus. Regarding the angels, he says, he sent his angels like the winds, uh, his servants like flames of fire. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, to his Son, endures forever and ever. You rule with a scepter of justice. You love justice and hate evil. Therefore, O God, your God has anointed you. This is God the Father speaking to the Son and about the Son. Pouring out the oil of joy on you more than on anyone else. And even in verse 10, it goes on and he says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth and made the heavens with your hands. And on and on and on. Here we have this incredible passage in Hebrews that does what John is doing in this letter in 1 John of, of God the Father giving witness and giving testimony to the Son. And saying, here's who Jesus is. As Daryl Johnson kind of tongue-in-cheek says, he says, this is the true Jehovah's witness to the Son. God himself says, worship Jesus. So in 1 John 5, verse 11 and 12, it says, and this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. And it has this sense of urgency and powerful teaching that it declares that those who don't know Jesus are lost. They don't have the eternal life that Jesus offers to be with him in eternity. But rather, there is a death sentence that says that they do not have life. Which again, gives urgency to our witness. Gives urgency to our testimony to tell this world about the hope and the love of Jesus Christ. When we think about this word testimony, I want you to think about your own life for a minute and to think about what, what is it that you want your life story to tell? At the end of our lives, what, what story is it that we want people to tell of us? What will be the witness of our lives? Because our lives give testimony all the time. How we speak, how we live, it continually gives testimony to what is central in our lives, to what we believe in our lives, to what is critical in our lives. And testimony is powerful. Do we walk in faith and bold witness and in love, or do we walk in fear and timidity? This same author, John, also wrote in the book of Revelation. And in there, he too talks about witness and the power of witness and testimony. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, he's talking about those who died because of their faith, those who are martyred because of their faith. And he says this, of how they have overcome the evil one. It says in in Revelation 12, verse 11, and they have defeated him, the evil one, by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. They did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. And so here, John, in Revelation, he's speaking about those who give testimony and the power of testimony in alignment with a life that has lived in that kind of faith. And he says it overcomes the evil one. Because of the power and the boldness of that testimony, even willing to give up your life. Words and life in alignment. Give powerful witness. This morning, I want us to just have a a view of a short video that's just a couple minutes long. That is a modern day story of somebody who died for their faith. And it's so often, you know, easy for us to think about all those people over there. And this is of somebody who's over there, but 
Remember last week, and I shared a little bit about our, our Mennonite Brethren denomination, and I said the, two, the three largest uh, places or largest denom- national denominations are places where the MB family exists. They're in the Congo, in India, and the third one is Laos. And this is a story from that country in Laos of somebody who works with our MB missionaries and who's been a pastor in that setting. And uh, this is a story told by Bob Davis uh, of Pastor Com and his story. Let's have a look of his witness and his testimony. Pastor Com's story challenges me on so many levels. And even, even the reality of, as it says, his wife picks up the call and says, I'm going to continue the work. That's how you overcome evil in the world. The love of God, the conviction of this gospel and this testimony. He gave clear witness and bold witness in this country by sacrificial love. So it asks the question for you and for me, what story do we want told of us? We live in a country where there is so much freedom, where there is so much ease and comfort, and yet we can be so timid. I can be so timid in my witness. And it's God challenging us and John challenging this church and saying, you know what? Be encouraged, be bold in your witness. And as we come to verse 13 to the end, we see him encouraging this church and closing out this letter in this way. Powerful words of encouragement, words to rebuild the lives of exhausted people in the church. He says to have confidence in God, have confidence in the hope of the gospel, have confidence in your eternal security when your faith is in Jesus, have confidence in your forgiveness and that your sins have been forgiven. Have confidence in your prayers and your prayer life that it makes a difference. Have confidence in the fact that you can have freedom from a life of sin because of Jesus. He says in verse 13, he says, I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know so that you may know you have eternal life. And we are confident that he hears us whenever he asks for anything, we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make a request, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. You see a Christian brother or sister uh, sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give that person life. But there is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying that you should pray for those who commit it. All wicked actions are sin, but not every sin leads to death. He says, we know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, for God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them. And we know that we are children of God, and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and He has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And we now live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God and He is eternal life. So in these few short verses, John gives these bold statements to the church about Christian certainty. And he says, we know that God's children are sanctified. In other words, that you can live free from sin, that you can live with this family resemblance of looking like the Father and living like Jesus. Like Jesus. <clears throat> we know <clears throat> excuse me, that there is a spiritual battle raging. The world is full of darkness, but even in these evil days, we know that there is hope because of Christ. We know that we have a Redeemer. We know that we have a hope in Jesus because He is the one who has overcome the world, reversing its possibilities. We know that we don't have to carry the baggage of our sin anymore. Because you know what? There's nothing more exhausting than this. When we just carry the baggage and the weight of the world and our own sin, but that Jesus gives us freedom, that he takes it at the cross. 
So John is encouraging these believers to live in boldness. He's he's encouraging these believers to live with a bold witness and to live a life that, that leaves a mark on this evil world in the way that only the love of God can do. And it's not out of retaliation and revenge and more violence. He says it's the way of peace of Jesus and the love of God that took on the violence of the world through Christ at the cross. And it challenges us, challenges me, about how do we live with a more bold witness? And again, as I was praying through and thinking about this text, I was reminded of one of my favorite scripture passages, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. And uh, it's one, and I've shared this before, this ring that I have actually has the inscription of that 2 Timothy 1, 7 on here, and it's something that I wear that helps me to remember to have a bold witness. Helps me remember not to shrink back in fear and timidity because it says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. And it says, we can live with bold witness. We have a tendency to want to shrink back, but because we know these things, we can have boldness in our testimony in our lives. And when we want to shrink back, John is saying, he's saying, you need to choose courage. And instead of timidity, choose boldness. Live in a different way. And then he concludes this letter in verse 21. And in some translations, it just says, keep away from idols. In the New Living Translation, it gives a little bit more explanation of what that means. And it says, dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts, which is what idolatry is. Of anything that just takes God's place in your hearts. And sometimes those are good things. Sometimes those are even gifts that God gives us, but they become these idols that actually take God's place in our hearts. And he says, keep away from any of these things. But also as I think about that line in the context of this whole letter, I I think of don't let anything replace the love of God in your hearts. Because God is love. There's an extravagant love that has overcome the world. So he's saying don't let bold sacrificial love be replaced with fear or timidity or hatred or anger or bitterness or resentment or hopelessness or anything else. But he says embrace And know and understand this love of God in Jesus Christ. And because of that, you can live in freedom. You can live in boldness. And your words and your actions will be in alignment and give glory to the one true God. Would you stand with me and invite the worship team up as we sing in response and as we respond to the word of God this morning and I want to just lead us in a prayer and how we might do that Lord Jesus I thank you so much for your love for the world that you are willing to take on the evil and the violence of the world upon yourself and God right now before you we just confess the evil that is even there lurking within our hearts And Lord, I pray that you would bring it into the light and that you would help us to be people of repentance. Regularly confessing these things to you, recognizing that that evil that is there in the world that we see in such blatant ways on the news is also there lurking within the inner recesses of our very hearts as well. And Lord, would you change us? Would you transform us? Would we uh, understand more deeply the love of God through Jesus, the, the the central aspects of this gospel that we've been talking about here today and throughout this series. And may we live out of that, a life that is in alignment with these words and these truths, Lord. 
And Father, would you forgive us when we shrink back with fear and timidity? Would you help us to step forward in boldness, not in arrogance, but in a confidence in who you are and that you have overcome the world? And Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church to be a light in this dark world, in the ways that you call us to, in the ways that you invite us to, Lord, and that you would make our paths straight and make our paths clear and help us to walk in faith and in courage and in obedience, Lord. God, make us that kind of church, I pray. Give us unity. Give us your blessing for your glory, we pray. And for the sake of the world, thy kingdom come, Lord. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray. Amen.